This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meredith Hughes, Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Island of Dr. Moreau by H. G. Wells. Chapter 11 The Hunting of the Man. It came before my mind, with an unreasonable hope of escape, that the outer door of my room was still open to me. I was convinced now, absolutely assured, that Moreau had been vivisecting a human being. All the time since I had heard his name, I had been trying to link in my mind in some way the grotesque animalism of the islanders with his abominations, and now I thought I saw it all. The memory of his works and the transfusion of blood recurred to me. These creatures I had seen were the victims of some hideous experiment. These sickening scoundrels had merely intended to keep me back, to fool me with their display of confidence, and presently to fall upon me with a fate more horrible than death, with torture, and after torture the most hideous degradation it was possible to conceive, to send me off, a lost soul, a beast, to the rest of their comus route. I looked round for some weapon. Nothing. Then, with an inspiration, I turned over the deck-chair, put my foot on the side of it, and tore away the side-rail. It happened that a nail came away with the wood, and, projecting, gave a touch of danger to an otherwise petty weapon. I heard a step outside, incontinently flung open the door, and found Montgomery within a yard of it. He meant to lock the outer door. I raised this nailed stick of mine and cut at his face, but he sprang back. I hesitated a moment, then turned and fled round the corner of the house. "'Prendick, man!' I heard his astonished cry. "'Don't be a silly ass, man!' Another minute, thought I, and he would have had me locked in, and as ready as a hospital rabbit for my fate. He emerged behind the corner, for I heard him shout, Prendick! Then he began to run after me, shouting things as he ran. This time, running blindly, I went northeastward, in a direction at right angles to my previous expedition. Once, as I went running headlong up the beach, I glanced over my shoulder and saw his attendant with him. I ran furiously up the slope, over it, then turned eastward along a rocky valley, fringed on either side with jungle. I ran perhaps a mile altogether, my chest straining, my heart beating in my ears, and then, hearing nothing of Montgomery or his man, and feeling upon the verge of exhaustion, I doubled sharply back towards the beach, as I judged, and lay down in the shelter of a cane-break. There I remained for a long time, too fearful to move, and indeed too fearful even to plan a course of action. The wild scene about me lay sleeping silently under the sun, and the only sound near me was the thin hum of some small gnats that had discovered me. Presently I became aware of a drowsy breathing sound, the soughing of the sea upon the beach. After about an hour I heard Montgomery shouting my name far away to the north. That set me thinking of my plan of action. As I interpreted it then, this island was inhabited only by these two vivisectors and their animalized victims. Some of these, no doubt, they could press into their service against me, if need arose. I knew both Moreau and Montgomery carried revolvers, 
and save for a feeble bar of deal spiked with a small nail, the merest mockery of a mace, I was unarmed. So I lay still where I was, until I began to think of food and drink. And at that moment the real hopelessness of my position came home to me. I knew no way of getting anything to eat. I was too ignorant of botany to discover any resort of root or fruit that might lie about me. I had no means of trapping the few rabbits upon the island. It grew blanker the more I turned the prospect over. At last, in the desperation of my position, my mind turned to the animal men I had encountered. I tried to find some hope in what I remembered of them. In turn I recalled each one I had seen, and tried to draw some augury of assistance from my memory. Then, suddenly, I heard a staghound bay, and at that realized a new danger. I took little time to think, or they would have caught me then, but snatching up my nailed stick, rushed headlong from my hiding-place towards the sound of the sea. I remember a growth of thorny plants with spines that stabbed like pen-knives. I emerged, bleeding and with torn clothes, upon the lip of a long creek opening northward. I went straight into the waves, without a minute's hesitation, wading up the creek, and presently finding myself knee-deep in a little stream. I scrambled out at last on the westward bank, and, with my heart beating loudly in my ears, crept into a tangle of ferns to await the issue. I heard the dog, it was only one, draw near and yelp when it came to the thorns. Then I heard no more, and presently began to think I had escaped. The minutes passed, the silence lengthened out, and at last, after an hour of security, my courage began to return to me. By this time I was no longer very terrified or very miserable, for I had, as it were, passed the limits of terror and despair. I felt now that my life was practically lost, and that persuasion made me capable of daring anything. I had even a certain wish to encounter Murrow face to face. And, as I had waded in the water, I remembered that if I were too hard-pressed at least one path of escape from torment still lay open to me. They could not very well prevent me from drowning myself. I had half a mind to drown myself then, but an odd wish to see the whole adventure out, a queer, impersonal, spectacular interest in myself, restrained me. I stretched my limbs, sore and painful from the pricks of the spiny plants, and stared around me at the trees, and so suddenly that it seemed to jump out of the green tracery about it, my eyes lit upon a black face watching me. I saw that it was the simian creature who had met the launch upon the beach. He was clinging to the oblique stem of a palm-tree. I gripped my stick and stood up facing him. He began chattering. "'You! You! You!' was all I could distinguish at first. Suddenly he dropped from the tree, and in another moment was holding the fronds apart and staring curiously at me. I did not feel the same repugnance toward this creature that I had experienced in my encounters with the other beast-men. "'You!' he said. "'In the boat!' He was a man, then, at least as much of a man as Montgomery's attendant, for he could talk. "'Yes,' I said, "'I came in the boat, from the ship.' "'Oh!' he said, and his bright, restless eyes travelled over me, to my hands, to the stick I carried, to my feet, to the tattered places in my coat, and the cuts and scratches I had received from the thorns. He seemed puzzled at something. His eyes came back to my hands. He held his own hand out, 
and counted his digits slowly. One, two, three, four, five, eh? I did not grasp his meaning then. Afterwards I was to find that a great proportion of these beast people had malformed hands lacking sometimes even three digits. But, guessing this was in some way a greeting, I did the same thing by way of reply. He grinned with immense satisfaction. Then his quick, roving glance went round again. He made a swift movement and vanished. The fern fronds he had stood between came swishing together. I pushed out of the brake after him, and was astonished to find him swinging cheerfully by one lank arm from a rope of creepers that looped down from the foliage overhead. His back was to me. "'Hello,' said I. He came down with a twisting jump, and stood facing me. "'I say,' said I, "'where can I get something to eat?' "'Eat,' he said. "'Eat man's food now.' And his eyes went back to the swing of ropes. "'At the huts.' "'But where are the huts?' "'Oh. I'm new, you know.' At that he swung round and set off at a quick walk. All his motions were curiously rapid. "'Come along,' said he. I went with him to see the adventure out. I guessed the huts were some rough shelter where he and some more of these beast people lived. I might perhaps find them friendly, find some handle in their minds to take hold of. I did not know yet how far they were from the human heritage I ascribed to them. My ape-like companion trotted along by my side, with his hands hanging down and his jaw thrust forward. I wondered what memory he might have in him. "'How long have you been on this island?' said I. "'How long?' he asked. And, after having the question repeated, he held up three fingers. The creature was little better than an idiot. I tried to make out what he meant by that, and it seems I bored him. After another question or two, he suddenly left my side and sprang at some fruit that hung from a tree. He pulled down a hand of prickly husks, and went on eating the contents. I noted this with satisfaction, for here, at least, was a hint for feeding. I tried him with some other questions, but his chattering prompt responses were, as often as not, at cross-purposes with my questions. Some few were appropriate, others quite parrot-like. I was so intent upon these peculiarities that I scarcely noticed the path we followed. Presently we came to trees, all charred and brown, and so to a bare place covered with a yellow-white incrustation, across which went a drifting smoke, pungent in whiffs to nose and eyes. On our right, over a shoulder of bare rock, I saw the level blue of the sea. The path coiled down abruptly into a narrow ravine between two tumbled and knotty masses of blackish scoriae. Into this we plunged. It was extremely dark, this passage, after the blinding sunlight reflected from the sulphurous ground. Its walls grew steep and approached one another. Blotches of green and crimson drifted across my eyes. My conductor stopped suddenly. "'Home,' said he. And I stood in a floor of a chasm that was at first absolutely dark to me. I heard some strange noises and thrust the knuckles of my left hand into my eyes. I became aware of a disagreeable odor like that of a monkey's cage ill-cleaned. Beyond, the rock opened again, upon a gradual slope of sunlit greenery, and on either hand 
the light smote down through a narrow channel into the central gloom. End of chapter 11